Do you like wrestling? Want to save some money? Go to StarCast.com right now. There's a flash sale going on because StarCast 4 is coming to Baltimore and it's happening next weekend, November 7th through the 10th. You don't want to miss it. All the great stars of AEW will be there. Plus all the legends from Jim Crockett Promotions and World Championship Wrestling. All the fun stuff like RoboCop and the Yeti and the Shockmaster, but also all the Hall of Famers. How about staying in the red, white, and blue for the first time ever with the actual world title he won from Ric Flair in 1990, plus the great Muda in his original paint and the old TV title. And how about the first ever live appearance by Jim Crockett? You don't want to miss it. You can't get this deal anywhere else. You've got to go to starcast.com right now. The flash sale is happening right now, but it's going to end today. Go to starcast.com, put in the promo code flash, and you'll get 50% off. You can also come check out the official after party after AEW's pay-per-view full gear. Oh, you want to come to Tony Schiavone's birthday party? No problem. That's at Jimmy's famous on Thursday and it's on there as well. But if you can't make it to Baltimore, don't worry about it, man. Go to starcastonfight.com. Check out the incredible lineup of shows, including what has to be the most historically significant panel we've ever done. Jim Crockett, David Crockett on stage one time only with Dave Meltzer and Bruce Mitchell getting the good, the bad, and the ugly and everything about Jim Crockett promotions out there. And how about this? The great Muda with the help of a translator, you know, him, Sonny Ono, you get to ask the great Muda questions, hear his story for the very first time. Plus all the great stars of AEW, John Moxley sitting down with Jr. the entire Rhodes clan sitting down with Kenny McIntosh from inside the ropes. And how about the young bucks finally sitting down with Excalibur for a panel we're calling killing the business. Taz is going to host Jurassic Express for his Taz show. So many great shows. We can't list them all here, but if you pre-order at starcastonfight.com, you not only get Starcast four, you get one, two, and three. It's something crazy. It's like a hundred hours of content. You don't want to miss it. Go to starcastonfight.com right now and pre-order ahead of next weekend. And you get one, two, and three included. And don't forget today only use that promo code flash and you'll get 50% off your meet and greets for Starcast four in Baltimore. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib? No, you have There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. Fuck you, Bruce. I love you. Double cheeseburger. Double cheese. Double mayo. Double onion, mother. Hello, everyone. I'm Bruce Pritchard. And I'm Conrad Thompson. And this is something else to wrestle with. Bro, I created this show, I created you, and for ratings, you are going to talk all about me. This week, it's all about 
this guy. How about it, Conrad? What you thinking, man? Uh, I think that your impression of Vince Russo sounds like the uh, mayor uh, on The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like he's a, he's at the Kennedy family compound. Yes, I kept I'm waiting thinking. on you to say era. I mean, that's that's sort of your impression. Man, yeah. Vince Russo, we're going to have him stirred up this week. Um, how busy is your Twitter feed going to be tonight when this show comes out? You know, I, I imagine it's all going to be like tagged with, the, what is that, that Realm Network thing or whatever. Bro, everything's going to be a, a, attached to the Realm Network with the first three letters of that being, bro, let me tell you something. So, yeah, I, I can hardly wait. One of the most controversial figures in the history of professional wrestling. Some of his success cannot be denied, but we're going to examine the highs and the lows today. Bruce, let's get started. Are you ready? No, I'm ready. The question is, is are you ready? Because I know you like to antagonize. I do, and I'm ready to get you fired up today because our source material is Vince Russo's book. So it's going to be very difficult for him to call BS on some of the stuff we're saying here today. Uh, Of course, let's start from the beginning. Russo grew up in New York, so he was raised on the old New York Territory Wrestling. Guys like Captain Lou and the Valiant Brothers. Eventually goes off to college, falls in love, and finds his wife there. And they're still together to this day, which is pretty rare in wrestling. After college, where he graduated with a journalism degree, which a lot of Vic Venom fans may find hard to believe, he got into sales. And I've always found that fascinating because it seems like one of the keys to being good and creative is you've got to be a bit of a salesman, whether you're Eric Bischoff or Bruce Pritchard or Vince McMahon. Is it fair to say that in order to be, you know, influential and creative, you've got to be pretty good at sales too? I think, I think whenever you're telling stories and you're delivering anything to an audience or just a room full of people or one person, yeah, you're selling your ideas. You're selling what it is that you believe in. So you got to be a good salesman. Absolutely. Now, these days, uh, Russo is selling the Realm Network. He's got a show every day. So I'm sure uh, you'll see lots of responses from Vince this week. <laughs> Uh, So after he gets into sales, he discovers a a business opportunity. He could own a video rental store, which was just tremendous business in the 80s. Of course, these days, things are a little different. But he starts to see Blockbuster take his market share when they move into his area. So he starts to look for something else to do. And he finds himself in a relationship with John Arezzi doing a radio show in November of 1991 there in New York, all based on wrestling. What do you remember about John Arezzi and Vince Russo's radio show in 91? I remember John Arezzi having a radio show, and I remember Arezzi was a quasi-independent either wrestler or wrestling promoter, something like that, out on Long Island. But I'd heard the name John Arezzi. I I didn't know the name Vince Russo at that time. So eventually, Vince decides he wants to take this to the next level. He even briefly trained to be a wrestler with Hall of Famer Johnny Rods. Did you know that Russo tried out to be a wrestler and even started training a little bit? I knew that he had gone to Johnny Rods' school there for a brief time, but I think taking bumps and getting hit every night wasn't for Vince Russo. (laughs) That's not for a lot of people. Eventually, though, he finds his way into the WWE. And I'm curious, who would have been running the magazine at the time? 
there was a guy, Tom Emanuel was a British fella uh, that was the publisher, and he pretty much ran the overall publishing of the magazine. And then Ed Raschuti was the editor of the magazine, and so he handled putting it all together. He handled the content and handled the writers and photographers and everything for the magazine. So once he finds his, his way into the magazine and he's with the company, do you remember, you know, how he sort of, um, I don't know, meshed with the rest of the company? I mean, was, uh, was he sort of falling in line or did he have grandiose ideas right from the start from the best of your recollection? No, Vince had grandiose ideas and Vince, Vince was looking for a way to change and Vince came in. He, he didn't, he didn't want to do the things, the tried and true way that it had been done for so long there. Russo was looking to freshen things up, not only with his writing style, but the whole look and presentation of the magazine as well. Do you remember about when you met Vince? Well, this has been pretty early on. Was he in the office every day? Yeah, uh, Russo was definitely in the office every day, and I, I met him. You know, when he came in, he came around and introduced himself to everyone, and asked for help. And the fact that he actually was talking to people, and that he was actually asking questions, was a refreshing sign in and of itself. So that in that right there was something that made Vince stand out from the other folks over at the magazine. How was he able to move up so quickly? Because he's hired on just to sort of assist with the magazine. But before you know it, uh, he's moved up to the editor of the magazine and he even launches the raw magazine. Of course, at the time, the WF magazine had been around forever, but now they're going to add a second publication. And that all happened under Russo's watch. How did this happen so quickly for him? He was able to, to come in. He had some fresh ideas. He had some fresh ideas, and they were good ideas to freshen up. We, we had had a magazine that had been kind of marred in an upscale wrestling magazine that had been on newsstands for years. And Vince Russo came in and just wanted to update it. He wanted to make it, I don't want to say more real, but Russo actually got involved with the talent and with us, so that what they were doing in the magazine mirrored what we were doing on television. That was something that the magazine hadn't done before. In addition, he was push, pushing for shorter lag time and production time so that what you had in the magazine was more current and more up-to-date than what had been previously done. This is the current issue of the magazine, and uh, Vince Russo... Look at this, walking in, look at that. You now, you're the editor, right? Yes, I am. Uh, this is very cool. When does this edition hit the stands? Uh, this magazine will hit the newsstands this Tuesday, May 10th. Okay, and you have the Hitman on the cover, but I understand the feature article is on the Rocket. Well, the Hitman is on the cover, but the big news with, is with Owen the Rocket right. Heart. Tells the magazine that he used to be the Blue Blazer. Oh, man. And the reason why he wore a mask was because Brother Brett didn't want Owen to get a lot of attention. Really? Uh, how was he received by the boys, you know, when he's all of a sudden got a different approach to the magazine? Do they look at it as something that's going to help, or is it a bit of a nuisance and something they don't really want to be bothered with? I think that there were a little bit of both. There were those who looked at it as an opportunity to get their characters over, and they looked at it as an opportunity that, hey, this guy's actually coming to me and asking me for my opinion. 
He's asking me for my comments. Then there were also, you know, that group of talent that felt they've made it up for all these years prior. Why don't you guys just continue to make it up? You go, you go write whatever the hell you want. I don't care. So it was a mixed bag. Um, what was Vince's take on all this? He told us what the boys liked. Do you remember an incident where maybe Vince was not so pleased with something that Russo had done for the magazine? Well, Vince McMahon was pleased, especially in the beginning, because the magazine was taking on a new feel and, and it was covering the storylines, the same storylines, and being more up to date with the television product. So Vince McMahon was happy about that and looking at it, this is progress. I think that there were sometimes that Russo would print things that talent would say that didn't necessarily follow their storyline and didn't necessarily uh, continue with their character and help enhance their character. It may have been more, for example, it was more Bret Hart versus the Hitman talking. It was made more Kevin Nash than Diesel. So Vince wanted those characters. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, how he starts to maybe move up politically. He eventually writes in his book that he felt like, you know, the, the magazine wasn't good enough. He had aspirations higher than that. And he wants to move up. And the way to do that is to get close to the guys who were close to Vince, specifically Bruce and Pat. And he had a lot to say about you in his book. He says, Oh, I'm sure. My relationship with Bruce Pritchard was a bit more suspect. Bruce and I were better friends, per se, than Pat and I were. But call it instinct, I was always leery of him. From the beginning, for whatever reason, I never trusted him. And he goes on to say that your ideas, while they may have worked in the old school wrestling era, they were stale and not working by 1996. And he suggests that you felt threatened by his presence. So you try to take him under your wing, so to speak, but really just as a defensive strategy to hide his true talent from Vince McMahon. So your response, Bruce. So let me get this straight. I took him under my wing and I bring him into the mix with Vince McMahon to talk about his ideas and to help us out because I'm threatened. Does that make sense? Well, if I'm threatened, I'm going to keep him away. If I, if I don't want him there, I'm going to keep him away. I'm not going to bring him into the mix. No, we, we needed help. We needed some fresh ideas. And Russo had fresh ideas. And it was another voice. So I wanted Vince Russo to come in and be a part of it because he was contributing. And it was a different way of looking at the business. He takes you guys to task for a lot of your ideas in the book, and he's got one that I just can't let slip by. He says that, you know, he he was able to sort of listen and learn a lot from you guys, but he learned a lot about what not to do too, including one time when you guys pitched the idea of having OJ Simpson wrestle at WrestleMania 12 for a million dollars. And allegedly you were even thinking of having Fred Goldman, which I just can't even believe participate and and the stipulation was fred would get this is directly from the book a bat that was a gun a machete or a hand grenade yeah that wasn't our idea that was vince russo's idea our idea was for oj simpson 
to have a match with like a Roddy Piper. It was Vince Russo's idea to have Fred Goldman have a match with O.J. Simpson. That wasn't our idea. (laughs) I don't know why, but the idea that O.J. at WrestleMania in 96, is that the worst idea you ever had? It's got to be up there. Oh, God, no. I've had much worse ideas than that. Trust me. It ranks ranks up there as one of the most tasteless ideas uh that we've ever had but not definitely not the worst i've i've had worse but but the idea of no bro it should be goldman it should be the father and we give the father a bat a gun a knife whatever he wants to just beat the uh, shit out of oj it's like what the f- a hand what the f- a hand grenade this is real life <laughs> This is unbelievable. Yeah, that wasn't our ideas. That was Vince Russo idea. A hand grenade. Um, Russo also wrote that Bill Watts came into creative for a little bit, and I can't wait for us to talk about that another time. But he does say that, in his opinion, you were intimidated by Bill Watts. And uh, again, <laughs> oh, you're laughing at that. So you don't. You I am laughing at being intimidated by Bill Watts. Yes, I'm laughing at that. That's funny Why? to me. Why am I laughing at that? Yeah. Because I wasn't intimidated by Bill Watts. Bill Watts was a bully, and Bill Watts was somebody that was coming in, and actually that we were happy was coming in. Again, someone with new ideas to help us out because we had been doing it for so damn long that we needed fresh ideas, and we wanted somebody from the outside to come in and help. That was it. But intimidated in no way, shape, or form. Russo writes that it was Bill Watts who invited him to start sitting in on the booking committee meetings. Is that the way you remember it going down, that Bill Watts is the guy who first puts him in that circle? I'm sorry, a minute ago it was me who took him under his wing, and I was the one that first started bringing Vince Russo. I'm the, I'm the one that first brought Vince Russo in when we would sit down and write TV and when we were doing things like that. There was no booking committee. It was... Vince, Pat, and myself, Bill Watts was added to that mix. Um, What's Jim Cornette doing? Uh, Jimmy Jimmy wasn't a part of it yet. Okay. Uh, Russo uh, writes in his book that uh, when Brett came back to the WWE in the fall of 96, he does a full-blown shooter interview for the new Raw magazine, and he shows you the rough draft And he alleges that instead of doing what he asked, which was take a look before I go show this to Vince, he suggests maybe you're a bit of a tattletale and you went and showed it to Vince and Vince flipped out asking, you know, what was Russo doing trying to put him out of business by referencing Eric Bischoff and WCW in the magazine. Do you remember that particular incident and the fallout from it? Sure I do. Yeah. Vince, uh, Russo had, done an interview with Bret Hart, and he printed it as verbatim. That's what I mean about where he would take the Bret Hart, the human being, and not the character, the hitman Bret Hart, and he put that on paper. And I did take it to Vince. I was like going, is this is this what you want? The initial reaction was, this is bad, this is bad for business, all this other stuff. It turned into... Vince McMahon, you know, coming back is like, damn it, this is what the Raw magazine needs to be. This is what Raw 
needs to be. So, uh, you know, so if me bringing that to Vince's attention, which is what got Vince McMahon to pay attention to Russo even more, then, again, that's my fault. Yep, sure did. I brought it to Vince's attention, and it got Vince Russo recognized to actually be used more and got him praise. So, guilty. Guilty as charged. Did you know that 80% of the immune system is influenced by the gut? Or that supporting the immune system through proper diet and digestive health enables pets to better fight environmental allergies? Solid Gold is passionate about gut health because a healthy digestive system positively impacts the immune system and overall wellness of pets. Solid Gold was the first holistic pet food company in America, started all the way back in 1974 by Sissy McGill. Now, Sissy was a trailblazer and a pioneer who disrupted a very much male-dominated industry and created a natural pet food, quote-unquote, before it was cool. You see, Sissy was inspired by European pet food and the fact that European Great Danes lived longer than their American counterparts. And her first recipe, Hund and Flocken, has now provided high-quality nutrition and digestive health for more than 20 generations of dogs. Solid Gold's nutritional platform is inspired by their founding belief that high-quality food is the best way to impact our pet's mind, spirit, and body. For over 45 years, Solid Gold has revolutionized the holistic pet food category, and they have a recipe for any dog or cat's dietary needs, including whole grain and grain-free options, wet food, supplements like sea meal, and 100% human-grade bone broth for dogs. Solid Gold foods are different because they cleanse the digestive system with whole superfoods, balanced with living probiotics, and fuel with omega-3 and 6 fatty acids, all the while supporting gut health and nourishing your pet both inside and out. Now, right now, Solid Gold is offering our listeners 30% off their first order by visiting solidgoldpet.com forward slash wrestle. That's solidgoldpet.com slash wrestle for 30% off your first order. Remember, 30% off your first order when you go to solidgoldpet.com slash wrestle. That's solidgoldpet.com slash wrestle. We'll talk about the uh, the comment that the magazine and the TV need to look a little more like in a minute. First, I do want to ask, when when he describes you sort of running this rough draft over to Vince, he says you have no Spaldings and that you're one of the many yes-men that Vince had surrounded himself with for decades. Your response? Well, I would have to go back to... Um... The fact that, A, I was there that long, and B, the fact that Vince McMahon and I usually disagreed on most things, especially when it came to the business and creative ideas. And that's why I stayed around for so long, because I did disagree with Vince. However, if he considers that after the two of us argue it out and the owner of the company, your boss, says makes a decision, whether it's your idea or his idea, he makes a decision in a direction to go. I supported Vince McMahon, and I supported the boss once he made that decision. So if that's being a yes man, then I'm a yes man. But I fought tooth and nail for my ideas. I fought tooth and nail for other people's ideas with Vince. But once you leave that room and a decision is made, you don't go behind people's backs and say, well, you know what? Hey, I had this idea, and the old man hated it, but I'm in your corner, buddy. That's not what you do. 
You go out. This is now our idea, and this is what we're going to do. And it doesn't matter what your idea or Vince's idea was. What matters is the idea and the direction that was decided upon and move forward. Russo wrote that eventually McMahon started to carve off more and more responsibility, including him producing the localized promos for the individual talent. And he says before he was able to produce talent, Vince wanted to put him with Blackjack Lanza as sort of maybe a bit of a mentor of how to handle the boys. What's the strategy in putting together an old timer and a young upstart like this? Well, Jack Lanza had been the one that had been in the, in the rooms working with talent on a daily basis for the localized interviews. And Jack was that longtime producer. So you've got to learn what the hell you're doing. Russo had never produced television in his life. He had never produced talent in his life. So he's got to learn somewhere. And that was the starting point for Russo to start learning how to work with talent and how to produce talent and what works for television best. So put him with Jack Lanza, uh, in that framework so that Russo could start learning. Russo is pretty complimentary to some of the legends in the business who were helping the company in a backstage capacity at the time, whether it was Bob Backlund or George, the animal steel, or even Dutch Mantell. But I found that sort of interesting because he comes after you and even Jim Cornette for saying that you have these antiquated ideas, but he shows so much respect to these other legends. How do you reconcile all that? Well, I think that they were different. We were probably a lot more outspoken than the legends, if you will. And we were also kind of of the same age group. So the fact that we weren't his elder, um, probably he had less respect for that. But the fact that, you know, I'd been in the business since I was 10 years old, same thing with Jim Cornette. We had a lot more experience and a lot more tenure in the wrestling business than he did. But it was a difference of opinion, in my opinion, uh, more than anything else. Eventually, Russo starts to feel like the company is a bit of a sinking ship. He describes the fake Razor and fake Diesel, uh, I don't know, shenanigans as rock bottom. And he's so frustrated with this, he calls Kevin Nash to see if maybe there's a spot for him in WCW. Russo's working without a contract here. So he eventually has a conversation with Eric Bischoff where he just asks Eric for an opportunity and Eric offers him a $75,000 a year position. But before accepting, he wants to at least have a conversation with Vince and thinks maybe I should try to have like a warm up conversation with Linda just to sort of feel out the process. In the middle of that meeting, Vince walks in and says that Russo is selfish when did you remember hearing about Russo maybe testing the waters in WCW? And how did McMahon explain that meeting to you? Well, it was, again, as, as you said, Russo testing the waters. And that, that angered Vince McMahon. Uh, employees, which Vince Russo was, we didn't have contracts. So if you were an employee, you were an employee and you didn't have to have a contract uh Pretty much you could leave of your own volition or if you were fired. I don't believe we had any non-competes. We didn't have anything at the time. So Russo was testing those waters, seeing if there was something else out there. I don't know that, uh, I guess you would know a lot better uh, from talking to Eric Bischoff if indeed 
Russell was actually offered a position. I, I don't know that to be true, but I do know that it angered Vince McMahon that he was even looking before he came to Vince McMahon and said, hey, is there something more I can do? Let's fast forward. Of course, Russo doesn't leave. He sticks around. And by March of 97, Raw Magazine is really hitting its stride, and he calls a meeting. He being Vince McMahon, pronouns pal. And in front of everyone, he says that the show sucks, and the show should be more like this, and slams down the latest issue of the Raw Magazine. And Russo would write... With that one statement, I rose above all the creative brass sitting in that room. He would continue, man, I looked into the eyes of Pritchard, Ross, and Cornette that day, and I've never seen such hatred. They had to be thinking, how did this guy pull this off? I'll tell you how, by being honest and not playing anybody to get there by my own (laughs) merit and by just playing the game smarter. Do you remember this meeting and what are your response? What is your response to uh, Russo's comments here that he was just better and that he had won? Well, I, what did he win? And again, I go back to, you know, if he's playing games, we weren't playing games. We were doing our job. So it wasn't about playing games. And I remember that meeting vividly. The shows did suck. And it was also at a time where I was looking for someone to come in and help us. And Vince Russo was one of those people that I was pitching for to come in and help us take some of that burden off of us to throw some fresh ideas in there, okay? Not the traditional wrestling ideas, not another old-school wrestler, one of somebody with a completely different outlook, which Russo had. So I applaud that. And he did have a completely different outlook, and he... Sometimes his approach was a little rough, but that's okay too. Mine was as well. But looking at him with hatred, there was no hatred there at all. It was, okay, great. Whatever it is, whatever it is, to get Vince off of the fence and to get some change and to get something different going is good. Like when people talk about, well, whose idea was? Okay, it was my idea. It's his idea. It's her idea. doesn't matter. If it's a good idea, it's a good idea. If it's a bad idea, it's a bad idea. Well, you asked a minute ago, what did he win? Russo wrote that he won your spot on the booking committee because you were out at that point and you were sent to talent relations. So Vince McMahon's dining room table had Vince McMahon, Jim Cornette, and Vince Russo. Well, and all, no, all. Vince Russo didn't win my spot in any way, shape, or form. Let's talk about facts, okay, and what took place at the time. J.J. Dillon left the company abruptly. J.J. Dillon was vice president of talent relations. J.J. left abruptly, left a huge void in talent relations with no one to step into that position. Vince McMahon made the decision to put me in that role. I didn't want that role, wasn't good at that role, to be clear, and didn't want to go there. However, Vince wanted someone that he could trust, and he wanted someone in that position that he knew, and that had, that, that also knew the ins and outs of talent relations. That's what happened. My role in talent relations didn't allow me enough time to do both, and that was how Vince Russo won that position. He didn't win shit. It was <laughs> it was moving. I mo- I moved from here over to here. That's what happened. 
Well, I can't wait to say that uh, you failed at that, and you were only in talent relations for a few weeks before you came crawling back because Vince McMahon had to give that job to someone else. What? And now you were a man on an island, a man with no country, and you had nothing to do. So what better to do than to just sort of stir up some controversy? He says that you went to him and called him into his, into your office and said, people in the office don't want to work with you. Nobody. And he wrote, he even went so far as to name names again, not believing a word of this ploy. I question who everyone had spoken to Bruce. Uh, everyone flat out denied the allegations who was lying and who was telling the truth. So he says that you feel super threatened now that you've been kicked off of the booking committee, you've been kicked out of talent relations, and now you're trying to, you know, sort of say, Hey, nobody even likes you, Vince, your response. So what the hell was I doing then? Because I was in talent relations from 1997 until 2000. Uh, actually I was in talent relations from 1992 to 2000, but still, uh, that's beside the point. No, what Vince Russo is making reference to there was when Russo got on the the writing thing, was helping Vince write the television show, he was kind of running roughshod over a lot of people, and particularly in the magazine and at the television studio. Vince McMahon came to me and said, Pal, he's your buddy. You're the one that brought him in. You need to rein him in a little bit. Damn it, I'm getting people coming to me. And I think it would be best coming from you to talk to him. And I was blunt. He didn't sugarcoat it. And I said, Vince, you know, you might want to ease the way that you're talking to some people. Here's, here's the feedback that I got. And my feedback was directly from Vince McMahon. Now, I did name names because I don't like, you know, when you're in a situation like that. Well, who said that? I'm going to tell you who said it. Russo went, confronted them. They denied it to Vince Russo. Had we had the opportunity to say, hey, everybody, get in the same room, including Vince McMahon, and let's talk about it, I think it would have been a completely different situation. I was the fall guy. My role and my position for so long, I was the asshole. I was the bad guy. I delivered the bad news. I was the one that had to have those conversations with people. But in that particular one, that came directly from Vince McMahon, and that was feedback that he had gotten from people. And Vince felt that it would be easier and be better if I delivered that to Vince Russo, and I was able to you know, say, hey, man, get your shit together. Do this, do that. When he went and confronted people, no, Vince, I would never say that. That's human nature. That happens every day in every business all over the world. Well, what doesn't happen is when two people dislike each other as much as Vince Russo and Jim Cornette. Russo wrote in his book that these guys just never got along. He felt like Cornette's ideas were 20 years too old. He had nothing new to contribute to the wrestling business, at least in Russo's estimation. And he says that they argued so frequently that McMahon would turn red, the veins popping out of his neck. It was like separating children. This is typical wrestling. Wrestling is it wrestling? What, what do you say down there in Kentucky or Tennessee, wherever you come from? Typical wrestling, Jim don't Cornette. Move to New this York is 1996, Jim Cornette. You hear me? People don't want to he hear this anymore. Here. Okay. What's now the let's, temperature? 
I'm not concerned about, about Tebow. I'm concerned about you the don't fans. Know I seem to be the only one here who's concerned about you the fans. But he says effectively, Cornette had enough rope to sort of hang himself when he made a pitch that sealed his fate, at least in Russo's mind. And it was the way Chainsaw Charlie debuted. This was a Jim Cornette idea, and it's a pretty famous story on the podcast. Put a motherfucker in a box and he'll be over, mother. Um, I don't know that the Chainsaw Charlie debut is what sealed Jim Cornette's face by, fate by any stretch of the imagination. Cornette and Russo were oil and water. Man, it was the North meeting the South, and, <laughs> and it was the Civil War all over again. I hate that mother Yankee son of a bitch. Now I've got spaghetti out of a box eating mother. Um, they just didn't get along, man. And 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 corn and corny's ideas were based a lot in Southern wrestling and Memphis wrestling and Southern wrestling. They were based on good versus evil and very traditional babyface heel strong uh, characters, if you will. In that way, and Corny would make comments sometimes like, "If it comes out of a box, he's over." Uh, that you know, Russo would have fun with and would chuckle. So would Vince McMahon. However, Corny's ideas were good. Sometimes his presentation wasn't always the best. But Russo and, and Cornette hated each other then. Still do to this day for whatever reason. And and I think it's silly in that regard as well. Well, after this blow up about, you know, anybody who comes out of a box is instantly over. (laughs) Russo says, I knew it wasn't going to work. It was horrible. And I went to McMahon and said, you've got to choose. This is not going to work him or me. And McMahon decides to go with Russo. So the very next week, Cornette is off the booking committee. Is that the way you remember it going down? I remember, well, I remember... Boy, I don't think I've ever said this before, but hey, you know, I mean, I I remember going back to the first ever meeting that Jim Cornette was in at Vince McMahon's house and and Corny going on and on and on. And what you see is what you get with Jim Cornette. Jim is, is constantly talking and constantly pitching and constantly going on about what he believes and how he feels the business should be. After the very first meeting, Vince was like, I, Vince McMahon was like, God, I don't know if I can work with that. And asked Corny to tone it down a little bit, which Cornette did, because Cornette's a smart guy. He, he understood that. He was able to tone down his pitches. I think what ramped it back up was Russo's pitches, because Russo's were just as passionate, but on the other side of the spectrum. And Russo's pitches had that same had the same passion and the same enthusiasm as Cornette's did. However, I think sometimes they came across not as um, flamboyant or crazy sometimes as Corny's would, because Corny would be from that southern realm that I think Vince McMahon kind of would look down upon sometimes, and, and or not embrace, not look down, not embrace as easily. So it was New York versus Kentucky just all over again. In his book, Russo sort of defends the idea that he got 
all of his creativity from watching ECW. He says that's not the case. It was really more of a case of him going and sort of asking his son, Will, what are kids your age into? And it was things like Tom Green, there's a name from the past, that was really inspiring all of Russo's ideas, as opposed to maybe the 1970s National Wrestling Alliance. And he says that's really the crux of his disagreements at the time with Jim Cornette. Is that fair to say? I would say that's fair to say. And Howard Stern. Howard Stern was, that was Vince Russo's hero. That is what Vince listened to every day and watched. And he thought that Howard Stern was the end-all, be-all. And Howard was pretty damn popular at the time. So if anybody is going to take credit or when you look at what Russo stole a lot of his ideas from, is from that Stern era and from that Stern ideas. Let's uh, let's step back a little bit into late 96. Russo has McMahon's ear about how everything sucks, including the new show Livewire, which as a kid was one of my very favorites. It was a live Saturday morning show where you guys would read emails, faxes at the time, and even take callers with special guests to sort of further the storylines and just sort of keep the audience up to date as to what's going on. And Pettengill was not a favorite of Russo's. Russo thought that Todd Pettengill sucked in the role, and eventually McMahon says, well, why don't you just do it? And all of a sudden, Vic Venom, what's going to be the editor of the Raw magazine, is now a television character, and it doesn't take long for him to upset Vince when he essentially gives a spoiler, whether he meant to or not, for the 1997 Royal Rumble. Okay, uh, you want to spew a little bit about spew a little bit about the WWF Royal Rumble? I'll spew all you want, Todd, because <laughs> the fact of the matter is, it's a month away, and as, as I'm sitting here today, I already know who the win is going to be. And you know, as well as I know, and everybody out there knows, people are going to be coming from all over the world to to win the honor of meeting the WWF champion at WrestleMania. And without a doubt, bet your Rolex, Todd. In your case, bet your Timex. The winner is going to be Brett the Hit. Man hot, no doubt about it. I agree. We saw Russo a lot on every other television that he wrote, whether it was TNA or WCW. Why was this the only time we saw Vic Venom on TV here at Livewire? And what can you tell us about that Royal Rumble spoiler story? Well, the reason that you didn't see him on television was because he sucked. It was not good. And and it, it was terrible. Go back and watch it. It was absolutely terrible. The Russo came in, was bitching about every show. Ah, oh, this show sucks. That show sucks. Every everybody sucked to Russo. There were no ideas as far as how to fix them and how to make them better. So Vince McMahon was like, "Okay, it sucks. You go on." Now here's where it gets. This to me is the interesting part because Vince Russo would talk about how things need to be more real life based and they need, it needs to be real and you need to get the real human being and you need to get be, be real with your reactions and be real with everything. So Vince Russo, being real, goes on as Vic Venom. I am a heel, Vic Venom. You know how I'm a heel? Because my name has Venom in it. It's VV, Vic Venom. It was ridiculous. It was it was the stereotypical. Let me put it this way: Vic Venom would have fit in perfectly into Jim Cornette's 1970 Memphis wrestling, perfectly. Okay, he would have been the heel manager. 
cutting the promos that Vic Venom cut and what he talked about on Mania that morning. It, 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 it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. I don't remember what the hell he said about the Royal Rumble or anything like that, but I remember getting the call while the show was still going on from Vince McMahon saying, what the hell have I done? Hey there. The, uh, the, the line was, anybody who's paying attention knows that Bret Hart is going to win the Royal Rumble or something similar. Well, of course... McMahon flips out over that, thinking that Russo knew the spoiler of what the real plans were. Russo, at that point, says he was not even involved in creative. He had no idea. He just thought it was obvious. So the finish was changed, and Steve Austin wound up being the winner. So that's sort of an accidental thing, but maybe it was for the best. He does sort of question your creative genius at the time. You know, you're saying that he had. Don't be questioning ideas. my creative genius, my God, my, I'm a genius, baby. He he lists uh, some of these ideas that you and Vince and Pat came up with as the goon, Freddie Joe Floyd, a crack showing plumber, who, and Mantar. Uh, he says, "quote The television product was embarrassing to me. So outdated, so unhip, so ridiculous." This is why I sometimes chuckle when I hear and read about Vince McMahon, this creative genius. Who do you think was behind the Buffalo? Yeah, Bruce and Pat were writing it, but Vince was approving it. So rather than follow that cluster, I went the other way. Uh, do you want to defend who or Mantar or the crack showing plumber? Yeah, I do, because they, they weren't stars, and they were never meant to be superstars. They were enhancement talent that we wanted to give gimmicks to, so you would care a little bit more about the people that were getting defeated each and every week. And they weren't they weren't the guys you were looking at. This is going to be the main event of WrestleMania someday. No, they were talent that we were utilizing to help get other talent over. But we wanted to give them a little bit of character. And that was during the time that Vince took who they were and tried to just embellish on their personality. The goon, he was a goon when he played hockey in high school and college. T.L. Hopper was a licensed plumber in real life. That's what he was doing (laughs) in real life. Uh... Mantar was half man, half beast. <laughs> I mean, his feet were like hooves. They looked like friggin' hooves, and that's how they came up with Mantar. It was he had the damnedest big feet, Mike Halleck. But um, you know, those got none of those guys were ever meant to be superstars. We didn't focus on them. They weren't somebody that we were doing angles with or storylines with. We just gave them gimmicks and tried to make them a little bit more than Mario Mancini from Hoboken. <sighs> Including half man, half Buffalo. So let's talk about some of the ideas that Russo does take credit for and let you debunk or confirm some of these. Are you ready? Oh, sure. Bring it on. Uh, He takes credit for the DX invasion of Monday Nitro. True or false? False. Okay. And, you know, this is one that always gets me because we we have been sitting in, in production meetings and Vince was discussing 
old times in the wrestling business and, and what would have happened back then if a competitor had come into your territory and what would have happened in the olden days if this had happened and i remember raising my hand saying in the old days we would have gone and knocked on their door we would have gone and sent you know our toughest guys and sent a bunch of our guys to go visit one of their shows call them out that was the germ of the idea that was in a production meeting in front of everybody about three or four weeks before the invasion actually happened. So when we get to where we were in Norfolk, or wherever the hell were we? Wherever the hell I we were. where you were, but the, the show that you it was, guys It was Hampton was in and, hey, yeah, Hampton and Norfolk. So we get there, and Vince McMahon called me and said, hey, we're going to do you know, a little invasion thing. We're going to go down there. Uh, I'm going to have you go with the guys. I want you to produce it. You know what you're doing. We get, to the, we get to the show, and we have the DX army and the tank and all the military gear and all the other crap. And Russo wanted to go and produce that. And there, I was standing right there. He was like, well, I should go and do it. And Vince was like, no, I want Bruce to do it because Bruce knows how to handle those situations. And I need you here, pal. Um, but Russo was butthurt over me going and producing that stuff in Norfolk because it was it was under extreme conditions. There were uh, law enforcement people involved. There was a potential of getting arrested. There were a lot of there was a potential of a lot of chaos, put it that way. And things that could have happened in a lot of situations that I had been in that Vince Russo had never been in in his life, nor do I think he would have been able to handle in any way, shape or form. So the idea was mine to go knock on their door and go make a present it, presence at their show. And I'm the one that produced it. So I'm also the one that went to Atlanta. Cops far, cops close, see? Hunter now working Zoom. Oh, geez, I don't know. See if we can get you know, lousy these guys are really cheesy and they hate it when anybody makes fun of them. What do we do, Bruce? Okay. What? Everything's cool. All right, what are we doing? Okay, we're going to go on in here. We're going to... Uh, this is where the big boys play at. they got to have a big building. A big, huge Because sign. everybody knows that we got big bazookas. Right. <laughs> Produced all the stuff there. Uh, CNN Center in Smyrna, Georgia. The whole nine yards. So Don't, uh, well, don't hurt yourself patting yourself on the back there too hard. Well, no, what do you mean? You pat myself on the back. It was mine. When somebody else takes credit for your stuff, yeah, no, it, it's you that, take credit for this show every me. week. Hey, so let me yeah? ask this. Let's keep going here. The Rock referring to himself in third person—that's a Vince Russo idea, according to his book. Your thoughts? False. That was Jim Ross. Okay. Now going. Going back and going back because Vince Russo didn't have an idea. Rock had been out with a knee injury and Rock was coming back and Russo didn't know what to do with the Rock because it was like people were chanting before he left, Rocky sucks and die, Rocky die. He's like, I don't know what to do with him. Vince wants to bring him back as a baby face. I, I don't know what to do. I said, well, put him in the nation. He's like, we can't put him in the nation. He's not black. I say he's half black, half Samoan. But regardless, put him in the nation. 
It's controversial. He'll be he'll fit in perfectly there. Uh, Rocky didn't want to go into the nation. Rocky didn't didn't feel that that was right. He goes, guy, you guys are gonna turn me heel? It's like, what else do we do with you? And it was Jim Ross who had seen a Deion Sanders interview where Deion Sanders referred to himself the entire interview in third person. Well, Deion says Deion's going to have a hell of a game this week. You know, Deion says that he's going to catch this many passes and rush this many yards. And JR pitched that to Rocky. And he says, why don't you refer to yourself in third person as The Rock? And like, The Rock says, and then you cut your promo. And Rock gravitated to that. My favorite part of that is that Deion Sanders referred to himself as primetime, and he was a cornerback. He wasn't a receiver, and he didn't. Whatever the f it is, I'm using. You know what? I'm doing my Brian Gewertz imitation right now, not knowing anything about football. Deion, Deion, Deion says that he's going to tackle, or that he's going to block, he's going to block and snap that football better than anybody. And Deion, you get the idea, damn it. I'm giving you a a (laughs) an analogy here. Work with the damn analogy, will you? Okay. Deion's going to rush for some yards. I got it. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about Austin 316. Now, he does say that. Austin came up with it, but that McMahon was not going to go with it. And when he was trying to put Austin 316 on the cover and on all the graphics, McMahon wanted to get rid of it. He didn't like it. And Russo says he dug his heels in and made it work. And of course, the company and Austin made a boatload of cash. Does Russo deserve the credit for fighting for Austin 316 as a marketing tool? I hope he did, but once again, that was Jim Ross and I sitting in a merchandise meeting with the merchandise guy begging Vince to do an Austin 316 shirt and a shirt with Sid and just Sid's eyes on the shirt and no other graphics, you know, not a picture of Sid, no picture of Austin, just Austin 316 and then a Sid shirt with just those intense eyes and uh, one of those took off pretty damn good. I, I think I might go ahead. I'll pat myself on the damn back. Hey, so he also says that McMahon came up with the Goldust character, but all the vignettes, the writing, the character development, he says that was all him and some of his best work he did. Does he deserve credit for the early success of Goldust? Uh, Russo does deserve credit for the stuff that they did out in Hollywood. Russo was able, had a connection in Hollywood with the Academy Award people. And they were able to shoot some classic vignettes in Hollywood around the big gold statue for the uh, the Oscar statue. And Russo flew out there. That was one of his first projects that he got to go out and do by himself. And he wrote a lot of that verbiage and a lot of the movie verbiage for gold dust and helped out tremendously in the gold dust character. I give Bruce a lot of credit for that. He also says that Val Venus was his idea. He says he saw Sean Morley and said, man, this guy's sleazy. And he created a porn star character. Is Val Venus the brainchild of Vince Russo? That one doesn't feel like a stretch. Val Venus is the brainchild of Vince Russo. Uh, Russo wrote in his book, for every great idea in wrestling, there are 10 not so great ones. That's the way it works. You sift through the sand at times to discover one real gem. 
and he rattles off a few ideas of McMahon's. He says he wanted uh, Goldust in a full body stocking as the naked guy, and he wanted Sable with the human oddities, and he wanted Golga to be a hunchback whose shoulders couldn't be pinned to the mat. Um, do you remember any of these ideas You know that were getting batted around? What were some of the more ridiculous ones at the time? Well, I think as far as Golga, we, he wanted Golga, and, he, and for a long time he had it. I just don't think anybody paid enough Notice. attention to it. Yeah, he had big bulges in his mask. He wore that gold mask, and he had bulges all over it. So you can, the idea was, oh my God, what's deformed underneath that mask, and what have you? And then Russo went the other way with it, putting him in the oddities, which made it a cartoon more than anything. Um, yeah, there were some bad ideas in there, but I, I think that the, you get bad ideas too, man. <laughs> I'm just saying they can't all be winners. Yeah. They're, I got a shitload of them. Do you think the number one worst idea is probably the brawl for all? That goes right up there is probably one of the, not only worst ideas, and I hate to say stupid idea because I'm, I'm a firm believer and no idea is a stupid idea. That one was a bad idea, stupid idea, and an idea for all the wrong reasons. Uh, what were some of his good ideas? You know, it feels like we're, we're sort of dumping on some of these bad ideas like beaver cleavage and blood baths and, you know, whatever, the oddities. But Three Faces of Foley, The Stooges, some of those are Vince Russo-isms, right? Yeah, I think that Vince Russo was able to take, and to this day, you know, right here on the network, man, you can check out, you know, The Stooges, which they have a section here that is some of the funniest stuff and most entertaining stuff from two guys that were retired from active competition, but were two of the most entertaining people during that attitude era and that being pat patterson and gerald briscoe and and russo being able to put them and make them a part of that mr mcmahon entourage i thought was pure genius and i thought that, that was one of his better ideas russo had good ideas and the stuff that he did do with the rock and mick foley and triple h and sean michaels and, and you go on down the list the one thing that i credit vince russo for more than anything is everything on television had a story. And it was he was able to take every single segment and every talent on the roster and give them an identity and give them a story, large or small. There was something going on with everybody for you to care about them, one way or the other. And to that, I think that uh, he doesn't get the credit he deserves on that one. You know, the critics would say that Vince Russo really just hated wrestling and wanted to sort of shock and awe the audience with unrealistic shit. He was just throwing against the wall to sort of see what would stick. And he wanted to pattern everything after Howard Stern, which is why we saw some of the scantily clad women and we saw the oddities. He wanted more of a crash TV, more of an adult concept with porn stars and a pimp. And he says that Vince was sort of out of touch with all of this including the idea that the Godfather's references were really drug-related. Is there really pimps up in this house? <laughs> Do all y'all know that 
the Godfather be pimping hoes nationwide. Man, I want you to roll a fatty for this pimp daddy. Light that blood up and say. He says Vince McMahon just assumed it was all based on cigars. Is that true? Yeah, but so did Vince Russo. Vince Russo didn't know what a blunt was. Vince Russo didn't know what 420 was. Vince Russo didn't know a light one up, you know, light a fatty for this pimp daddy. Didn't know that that was in reference to that. Neither one of them knew. I'm going to need you saying light a fatty for this pimp daddy is like my ringtone whenever you text me. Um, I think a lot of fans sort of gravitate to that attitude era, Ryan. A lot of that is because, you know, it's what we grew up on. And the cool thing about WWE 2K20 is that you can relive all the great stuff with the legends, but you can also relive the groundbreaking journey of the four horsewomen and the women's evolution from their start in NXT to 2019, when the women finally headlined WrestleMania for the first time in history, all in the 2K showcase. And for the first time ever in WWE 2K, you can play as both a male or female character in my career, and you can unlock WWE legends, original characters, and unique environments as you make your way from the Indies to the WWE Hall of Fame. My career is fully voiced, featuring performances by more than 40 WWE superstars, NXT superstars, and legends, making it perhaps the best version of my career experience yet. WWE 2K20 also shines a spotlight on the big dog, Roman Reigns, and 2K Towers, Roman's reign. You'll follow the big dog through his early days in WWE, including his time as a member of The Shield, to his rivalries with Lesnar and Cena, Undertaker, and more. Overall, you get 16 matches to compete in, and then you live out key chapters in Reigns' impressive mark on WWE history, all while claiming championships and igniting the WWE universe along the way. And this new WWE 2K20 roster is loaded. More than 180 of your favorite WWE superstars, legends, Hall of Famers, NXT talent, and never-before-seen characters. Really, you've just got to see to believe. Now, the good news is this is available now for Xbox One, PlayStation 4, and PC. I don't know if you saw Bruce, but recently they put out a statement saying they realized there were some glitches in the game. They're going to be issuing a patch and supposedly a whole lot new of new content, new characters, new environments. They're going to, the good thing about 2K20 is this thing is going to be ever evolving with you. Well, that's because of Ramon Aranda. No, the folks over at 2K, they're listening to it and they're going to fix everything and make it right and make it the best damn game you ever played. Yeah, and I have a lot of confidence in uh, Ramon and Bryce and the, the staff that are over there that, you know, whatever sort of little hiccups there have been here or there, this thing is going to be really, really kick-ass because they're committed to it. They've always done right by us, and they're just like you listening to this show. Long time something to wrestle fans. Believe it or not, they were one of our first advertisers here on the show. So we appreciate their support and their loyalty, and we hope you will extend some of that too. And check out the new WWE 2K20 he also takes credit for putting Stephanie in front of the screen. He says that, uh, you know, he saw her backstage and thought she would be a perfect television character. So all these years later, uh, we have Vince Russo to blame for making Stephanie a TV character. Uh, you know, I'll give the credit to Jim Cornette. Um, really? It was, huh? I didn't say anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember Jim Cornette thought she was beautiful and would pitch often for Stephanie to be on television. And it was during the time of Russo and Cornette working together. The first time I ever heard that pitch was from Jim Cornette. 
Russo also takes the credit for the Montreal screw job. He says that you oh. guys were sort of sitting around the dining room trying to figure out what to come up with. It was his idea to say, why don't we just have him put him in a sharpshooter and then call for the bell? And everybody got quiet. And the next thing you know, the Montreal screw job goes down. Russo feels bad, so he tries to make it right with Owen, and Owen encourages him to call Brett and apologize. And he did. What do you remember about the Montreal screw job and the heat that came after? Because Russo's sort of saying it was his idea here. Oh, boy. You know, and, and I'm sure Russo uh, was the first man on the moon. And every, look, a lot of people suggested a screw job finish on that, so just take the title off of him. The idea for the sharpshooter came up while Brett and Sean were going over the match. And Brett suggested a spot where Sean reversed something and reverse it into the sharpshooter. And when he did that, that's where Sean and Jerry Briscoe were like, perfect. Because now Sean has him in a submission hold, and they could use that as the finish that Brett tapped out, that Brett, you know, submitted. So at no time ever leading up to that, was there ever, let's put him in a sharpshooter. Was there, at least not that I heard. And again, I've got, I've got pages upon pages upon pages of notes of the conversations during that entire time of the phone calls between Vince and Bret Hart and just different things that were discussed as to what the hell we were going to do. And in none of them, other than just take it off of him, uh, was any specifics discussed, nor were specifics discussed until after Sean and Brett had had an opportunity to kind of go over what they wanted to do in the match. And when that spot was talked about, it was like, Eureka, that's the perfect time to do it. Let's talk a little bit about the Mr. McMahon character. Russo says he takes credit for that too, because right after the Montreal screw job, Vince McMahon was holding a meeting saying, okay, let's get back to business and wanted to pretend as if none of it ever happened. Russo thought that was crazy because it was the most talked about thing on the internet amongst that group of fans and that they needed to cater to that. So eventually he says he was able to convince them to reconsider and sort of double down. And as a result, we got the why Brett, why bit on raw seven days ago at the survivor series. Did you, or did you not screw Bret Hart? Some would say I screwed Bret Hart. Bret Hart would definitely tell you I screwed him. I look at it from a different standpoint. I look at it from a standpoint of the referee did not screw Bret Hart. Shawn Michaels certainly did not screw Bret Hart, nor did Vince McMahon screw Bret Hart. I truly believe that Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart. What do you remember? Is Russo sort of the guy behind the Mr. McMahon push? You know, I'll give Vince Russo credit for being one of the people that had Vince's ear and was able to help convince Vince McMahon to do that. And obviously, we didn't know what the hell we had as far as the Mr. McMahon character. We didn't even really start that Mr. McMahon character until later on, and it just caught on and was just white hot with Stone Cold. But 
the uh, idea of Mr. McMahon, you know, I can go back to when Jerry Jarrett was there and Vince was going down doing shots for Jarrett in Memphis and working with Jerry Lawler as a heel. And I used to say all the time, Vince, you're the biggest heel in the business. You is a heel works. That would be the best heel in the business. And Jerry Jarrett going, Vince, well, oh God, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Vince as a heel. Why? No one would believe that. Why? Vince, you're great. I love you. Um, as a heel, I've been, I just saw Vince as a heel from day one. Vince Russo was able to be able to convince Vince McMahon to continue and to do that on air. And so, yeah, I'll credit Vince Russo for that and being able to get that character on air because that's something that we had tried to do for a while. No one, and I mean no one, thought it was going to explode and take off the way that it did. Russo gets upset when you sort of lump yourself in there with other people as being this big committee because he says, you can read all you want about creative teams and booking committees, but during the time I was writing with Vince, those were fictitious teams. There was no team. There was no committee. It was Vince McMahon and I, period. To this day, McMahon might not admit that. But doesn't he say he worked with Cornette and then later on he worked with Ed Ferrara? and Vince, and that is a team. Vince and Vince, that's a team. Vince and Cornette and Vince, that's a team. Vince and Ferrara and McMahon, that's a team. Bruce, Pat, Vince, that's a team. Um, And we all had, you know, Vince McMahon coming back to us and running things by us on a daily basis. Maybe Vince Russo didn't realize that, but that was real life. Russo would write that, you know, he really put most of the shows together completely by himself, but McMahon would sort of fine line things. And he wrote specifically, in my opinion, McMahon's forte, the thing that consistently used to blow me away about him is that he could make things just a little bit better. He visualized things better than I ever could. And it was his small tweak here and there that would turn a $50 million picture into a hundred million dollar blockbuster. That was his genius seeing things that nobody else could. Is that, a, is that a fair assessment about Vince? Oh, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly, yes. Yeah, Vince McMahon was able to take a germ of an idea and make it into a story. He says that one of Vince's best attributes, uh, to his surprise, was patience. He says when the ratings would come in every week, they'd all be sitting at his house, and there would never be a strong reaction one way or another from Vince. Even when they're losing to Nitro, he would say something like, we work damn hard for these threes. Is that the way you remember it? That McMahon was, was fairly patient in that? He had a plan and he knew it was going to be week by week? He was, and he also knew that our business was on the upswing as well. So he knew that while on paper, that the television may, ratings may show one thing, that business-wise it was showing something else, and Vince McMahon felt very confident in what they were doing. And he didn't, he did not dwell on that negative. There were times that he would react in a big way, maybe, <laughs> but for the most part, he really wouldn't dwell on it. It was like, okay, next week we're going to be better. Russo described the uh, Russo slash McMahon booking philosophy. Quote, 
We wrote every show to be better than the last and every show as if it were our last. You see, there was a formula. Along with patience, Vince and I took every traditional wrestling outcome or finish and went the other way. Whatever the audience was expecting, give them the unexpected. This, of course, is uh, his philosophy that we know as the swerve, bro. Um, Does Russo deserve credit for that? I mean, it does feel like in the Attitude Era, it was an era where the good guys are doing some bad things and the bad guys are doing some good things. Instead of having black and white, you had lots of shades of gray, lots of tweeners, as they say. Is that sort of uh, something that Russo brought to the fold, in your opinion? I think that that was something. Yeah, I do. I think that was something that Russo looked at it, the business, in a completely different way and challenged Vince McMahon to look at the business in a completely different way. Challenged all of us to look at it differently than we had previously. You know, we had grown up with these tried and true traditions. This is how you do it. And they blew that up and said, why can't you do it this way? And it makes you look at the business, makes you look at what you had traditionally done for so long in a completely different light. So I, yeah, I credit Russo for a lot of that and being able to get Vince to look at the business and all of us in a whole different light. Russo wrote that his biggest regret was hanging the undertaker from a symbol He says, I did a lot of things I'm not proud of, but lowering the Undertaker on a cross is the biggest regret I have. Uh, Do you regret that angle, Bruce? Is that maybe the the blemish on the Attitude Era when you guys did stuff with the symbol? You know, again, I think everybody has their own opinions. I didn't think it was that bad. I didn't think that that was nearly as bad as hanging the big boss man in the Hell in a Cell with the Undertaker. Uh, To me, hanging a man in the middle of the ring was much worse. Let's talk a little bit about uh, credit because he gets really caught up in not getting enough credit in his book. And one of the ideas is even calling Triple H the game. He says it makes him sick every time he hears JR scream it because he should be paid royalties because those were his ideas and nobody even believed in Triple H. He would say that Jim Cornette would say Triple H will never draw a dime in this business. And Russo would respond that Triple H has drawn a billion dimes. What do you think about him thinking he should have some sort of ownership or credit for some of his creations, like calling Triple H the game? Well, first of all, I don't remember Russo coming up with the game. I think that that was something that was put in a promo and that Jim Ross, had Jim Ross not picked up on that continually, called Triple H the game and reinforcing that, that, he wouldn't be called the game to this day. But so I credit Jim Ross for making it universal. No different than Jim Ross really helped with Stone Cold and a lot of guys as far as their nicknames and what have you. But the the whole, you know, yes, Jim Cornette said that Triple H would never draw a dime. Vince McMahon said the best Triple H will ever be is a mid-carder. And Russo was in Triple H's corner big time, and he fought for him. The first time that Triple H won the WWE Championship, that was something that Russo really wanted to do, that I would say almost to the man, people didn't feel that Triple H was ready for that at that time, that they wanted to wait a little bit longer to do it. And Russo fought for that. So yeah, I'd say that Russo, without a doubt, 
is responsible for a lot of Triple H's earlier success. Well, tell everybody about how great Blue Chew is and, and, and how they can get it shipped discreetly to their door for free if they want to find out what you know very well. That's simple. Go to bluechew.com. Use the promo code WRESTLE. That's all you got to do. It's not hard, but you can get a hard penis when you do it. <laughs> okay? I thought you were going to say it's not hard, but it could be. Go to bluechew.com. Well, it will be. It will be. I like it. And we're so confident you're going to love it because it has the same active active ingredient as both Viagra and Cialis, but it's chewable. So it's faster than those other two. But how about this? You know, I love a deal. It's cheaper than the other two as well, because you don't have the in-person doctor visit. Instead, you just talk to a bluechew.com physician online right now. And if you qualify, you'll be prescribed very quickly. And then you don't have to go to the pharmacy and have an awkward conversation. Instead, it shows up in discreet packaging and you're ready to get your cock real, real hard. Go to bluechew.com right now. That's B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com. And what's that promo code, Vince? Wrestle. Russo wrote in his book that one of the critical flaws of McMahon is that he would cave to the top stars, whether it was Hogan or it was Brett or it was Austin or it was Sean. And one of those moments was the WrestleMania 15 main event, which was supposed to be Austin rock and Foley. But he says that Shawn Michaels got in Austin's ear and Austin went to McMahon to get it changed. And he was the one who had to break the news to Foley that he was out of this WrestleMania main event. Is that a fair criticism of Vince that sometimes he would cave to the top stars? Vince, Vince listens to everybody. Vince McMahon listens to everybody. And if he feels that somebody has a better idea, then he's going to go that way. No different than, you know, anything else in the business. Vince McMahon is going to make the final decision. And maybe because it was different than Vince Russo's decision that he feels, oh, well, God, he didn't listen to me. He listened to somebody else. And so now Russo's upset about that. But that's all that is. And that happens to this day every single day that Vince McMahon may change his mind at the last minute based on whoever the hell he talked to last. So that's just called business and day-to-day life in the WWE. It's worth mentioning, I guess, that uh, he says that McMahon was just obsessed with Austin 24-7, and that left him an opportunity to work with guys like Rock and Mick Foley. Russo takes credit for putting them together and even the famous This Is Your Life segment that Mick Foley surprised The Rock with. Because I've got something I think you're going to like. This is big, Rock. This is important. As a matter of fact, this is your life. But he says that McMahon didn't get it and was furious that it went long until the rating came in, which Russo, of course, pats himself on the back for. What do you remember about Rock, This Is Your Life? Is that 100% Russo and something McMahon just sort of didn't get? The This Is Your Life was Russo, and I don't think that any of us got it initially. It was very entertaining. Here's the problem. It was more than 12 minutes heavy. So when you have a two-hour show, and let's say you have 10 or 12 minutes allotted for a segment, and then they take double that time that's sometimes that can be two to three other segments now that are affected that you have got to go back and completely eliminate all right so it's not fair 
it's not fair to the other talent. It's not fair to the television show. He could have done the exact same thing in the 12-minute allotted time. And it would have been just as good and got the same point across, been just as entertaining, and you're still having your show and everything else works. That's what Vince McMahon was furious about. That's what I was furious about. Because, again, it's not Vince Russo sitting up there at the last minute because he didn't know how to do it. He's not the one reconfiguring the show. I am. And I'm trying to make it fit, and I'm the one now getting all the heat, having to tell people, hey, sorry, I had to scratch your match. Why do you have to scratch my match? Well, because the Rock and uh, Foley segment went way too long. Well, who wrote that? Who's in charge of that? Go see Vince Russo then. Um, That was the reality. That's where people were upset. Not that it did a great rating. It did do a great rating. It could have done it in the same allotted amount of time and not affected the show negatively on the backside of it. Russo wrote in his book, I feel so corny saying this, but I have to. Vince and I grew really close. At times, he almost felt like a father to me. I cared so much about him, his family, and his business, maybe as much as I cared about my own flesh and blood. I have my critics out there, but the fact remains that without me attached to his hip, Vince has never achieved the success he did during that time. So I want you to respond to both of those. Uh, I guess we'll start with the second part first. Is it fair for Vince to say that McMahon never experienced that same level of success without him? No, it's not. Uh, I would say when you go back to the early 80s and from 83 to 87 and during that time Vince Russo was nowhere around and Vince McMahon was putting 93,000 people in stadiums so there was no Vince Russo around there and and we continued to do good business up until the time that we didn't so then during this time yes did absolutely phenomenal business record-breaking business during the time that Vince Russo was writing and he did help and he did contribute a great deal to that success since Vince Russo left the company has never made more money than it did and you know it's the company continues to grow every single year and so that's that's a ludicrous statement uh, in my opinion Uh, yes he had tremendous success and deserves credit for that, and a pat on the back. However, Vince achieved success before Vince Russo. Vince achieved success after Vince Russo. It's sort of interesting, the dynamic he breaks out in the book about the father-son relationship. He, He talks about how Vince would sort of cave to the talent, and it would happen a lot of times in front of him, which really killed his credibility. So if Russo was really arguing for an idea and the talent says that they didn't want to do it, then McMahon would just agree to it, even if the backup plan sort of stunk. And Russo felt like it killed his credibility, so he sets up a meeting to go sort of express all of this to McMahon, and he says, As I sat down in a chair across from Vince, I started crying like a baby. I couldn't stop. My emotions, whatever they were, came out in a river of tears. The expression on Vince's face, I don't think he knew what to say. Inside, however, he had to know that perhaps the pressure of our success was getting to me and he needed to be strong. And he knew that he needed to treat me with kid gloves. After I laid everything out, Vince said a few words and then ended his thoughts by saying, Vince, I love you. 
as soon as those words came out, I'm thinking two things. One, holy shit, this guy really does care about me. And two, is he kidding me or what? Why would he stoop so low and be so sappy to make me believe he really does care about me? I left Vince's office not knowing if he had ever been sincere. That's a shame, but that's what the business has done to me. You're always second guessing. You're always doubting. To this very moment, I don't know that Vince McMahon ever meant those words. I want to talk about just the dynamic because a lot of guys have this feeling about McMahon. He sort of referenced him as almost like a father figure to him earlier, but we've heard other people say this too, whether it's, you know, Shawn Michaels or, I mean, there's tons of guys and even the creative guys who sort of have this weird relationship with Vince and you maybe yourself at different times. What can you tell us about this father son dynamic that apparently Vince inspires with a lot of people. Vince does. And I've had the same relationship. I guess for me, it was more of a big brother because you know, I've got brothers that are older than Vince McMahon. So I looked at him as, is an older brother and somebody giving me advice, but he does have that father figure with a lot of guys that look up to him and, and want that encouragement, want that pat on the ass from Vince McMahon. You know, the fact that, that Russo looks at everything as cynically as he does, that's that's his fault. I mean, that that's that's his issues and that's his fault. Either you accept it and you take it and you go, okay, uh, man, I love you too, or, or don't pour your heart out to him. But when you're talking about Vince listening to other talent and siding with other talent in front of you, man, that's just the job. That's the job. You have to be mature enough to accept it, not take it personally, and move on with your business. Or if the heat's too hot, get out of the kitchen. That's just, I mean, that's just business. And that's the way that it is. And that's how Vince McMahon operates. So if that hurts your feelings or you're upset about it, maybe it's not for you. Without explicitly saying so, Russo takes credit for the word attitude. And he says he did this months before the, the, the term was ever coined. He gave Vince a t-shirt that said, don't give me any of your attitude. I have enough of my own. And he says that that's really where Vince came up with attitude. Do you remember where attitude came from? Yeah. The attitude came from the Shawn Michaels interview with Jr. that Shawn went out in his little biker shorts with his crotch stuffed and got fined a lot of money uh, for being immature and unprofessional. Uh, after Vince having several conversations with Sean and sh talking about Sean's attitude, his bad attitude, his poor attitude, his unprofessional attitude, Vince came back and was like, that's what it is. It's attitude. That's what he's doing. He's giving us attitude. It's the first time I heard it. And that was the first time that Vince McMahon started using it right after that. And that's where attitude came from, from my perspective with Vince McMahon was the Shawn Michaels interview. And right after that, right after the conversations with Shawn, you know, in the attitude era, you guys were sort of trying to serve two masters on the one hand, you want as much as you can in the ratings. And so that leads you to creating some sort of risque content. But at the same time, all of your marketing efforts, well, not all, but most are aimed at kids. 
Russo sort of blames McMahon for that. He says, I don't know. It always seemed like Vince never made enough money. When is enough enough? At the time, Raw had one of the most risque shows on television, yet Vince wants to admit it or not, the WWE was marketing to children. And in time, even though I was as responsible for that as anybody, I was beginning to struggle with the idea. I would tell Vince over and over again that I wasn't writing a television show geared for kids. I was gearing to an audience of 18 or older. Time and time again, I would tell Vince that merchandise was going to get him in trouble. But in business, the philosophy is always to make as much money as you can. I guess the challenge here, though, is, Bruce, if you know that you've got this internal struggle about are we doing the right thing, why don't you write different TV? Well, first of all, because the rating, the ratings bared out that that was what the audience wanted to see, first of all. The second part of that is when you talk about marketing and merchandising, we were actively seeking beer companies, uh, whiskey companies, uh, more adult-oriented uh, advertisers for the show. And they want they wanted that audience. The fact that the product that we were producing at the time was attracting those 14-year-old kids who wanted to watch that TV, you know, PG-13 or the, the TV Mature. The 14-year-old kids, those are the ones that are watching that stuff, all right? They're the ones that, are, that, are, that want all of that. So the marketing people and the advertisers, they realize that. That's why they're advertising there. If you're not in business to make money, then I don't know what the hell you're in business for. Uh, you're not in. You're not in business just to get. Hey, wow! We had eight million people watch us last week, but nobody advertised. Okay, if a tree falls in the woods, does anybody hear it? And does anybody right. care? So, if you've got advertisers and you're making money, that's the object of business. And they did obviously make a change to PG thirteen and focus and go directly to that marketing group and go right to that demographic now in what they're doing. During that time, we had an edgier product that was appealing to the 14-year-old kid, and it was appealing to the advertiser that wanted that 14-year-old kid. Russo says the reason a lot of the boys hate him is because he was able to be honest with them when others couldn't, and he lists examples like that. He says... Goldberg, Hogan, Bradshaw, Bischoff, even Piper, all those guys hate him because he was able to tell them the truth about their characters and he can live with that. Do you think that's the reason Russo has a bad reputation and that, you know, he just tells the truth? No, I think that how he deals with talent sometimes is probably the reason that he may be disliked uh, on other things. Vince Russo deep down is a really nice guy. And I believe that deep down Vince Russo wants to do right and is a good hearted person. I think that sometimes Vince Russo gets wrapped up in what he thinks he's supposed to be. And so that honesty gets lost. But as far as dealing with talent, sometimes it didn't come out that well. And sometimes people looked at it as, well, him because he's the guy delivering the message or he's the guy that came up with that idea. And it's so much easier for talent 
uh, everybody else to blame anybody else other than Vince McMahon. Because if you blame Vince McMahon, you, you got to go confront Vince McMahon, and you've got to go and deal with him. Most guys will say, oh, yeah, I have no problem with that, but they don't want to do it. It's much easier to blame someone else in between. One of those examples that you're talking about where he just didn't get along with the talent is when he says Shawn Michaels came to visit and he got in Billy Gunn's head about changing some creative. So when Billy comes back to Russo and makes a comment about what the creative is and what changes he wants made, allegedly Russo tells him to go himself and road dog and Billy Gunn are furious about this, but eventually he goes back and tries to fix it by the end of the day. Is this pretty common for Russo where he would just be very abrasive and rub people the wrong way like that? Yeah, because that's the wrong way to handle that situation. Yeah. Talent's coming to you with, with, with a suggestion or another opinion. You listen to it and go, okay, and you either you can debate it, hit the pros and cons, or you go tell them to go themselves, and now that's going to piss them off and they're going to move in another different direction. Russo says one of the things he hated about his job is that he had to travel with Vince McMahon a lot. And that meant you went everywhere Vince went. Even if he went to get a haircut, you were with him almost 24 seven. And all they ever talked about was the business, never the families, never the children, just the business. And Russo even says right when he would fall asleep, when they're traveling together, Vince would wake him up and want to talk about it more. And before they would part ways, McMahon would want assurance. Did I get it all? And Russo would say something like every drop. He makes the analogy that McMahon was almost a vampire after Russo's creativity and he needed everything he could get. Is that a fair assessment of McMahon and his relationship with the critical part of his inner circle? Yes, but that's what you sign up for. If, if you want to be a part, I love when people go, oh, you know, I want to be in the creative. Man, that's what you sign up for. I loved it when people would talk about how, oh, you guys travel in limousines and you got a, a jet plane taking you and you're staying in these nice hotels. You get picked up in a limousine and you go to work in that car. You get out of the car, you get on the plane, you work the entire way to your destination. You get out at your destination and you work on that short ride from the plane to the arena. You work all day at the arena. You finish up in the arena. You get back in a limo to work to talk about what you just did to get back to that plane to get on the plane and work to land in your next town, get off that plane, get in a limo, work for your drive to the hotel, at which point let's have a meeting and discuss some more about what the hell we're going to do tomorrow. Finish up three or four o'clock in the morning and end up with, all right, see you guys at eight o'clock to do some more work. That's what you sign up for. And if that's not for you, don't sign up for it. However, you know, that, that was Vince McMahon. That is who he is. I can't tell you the number of haircuts that I went to. I can't tell you the number of Stephanie's basketball games that we would go to and we would bring our booking books into the gym and we would work while waiting for her game to start. That was life. It's a tough life, man. Russo is not a JR fan either. Uh, he's pretty critical of JR and basically says that uh, he was unqualified 
to be like a GM of a sports team. And that's essentially what his role here was when he ran talent relations. He says he was out of his league and he doesn't think that he had the people skills to handle people. He says specifically a guy like D'Lo Brown wouldn't get the time of day, but he would invite Steve Austin over to his house for barbecues. And, uh, he just doesn't feel like he was a good manager and he's pretty critical of his contributions to the company and even took great offense when the company went public and a prospectus went out and Jim Ross was listed there almost as if he was like the general manager who'd made it all happen, a pillar of Titan, but Russo was not listed. What can you tell us about this professional jealousy or rivalry or Russo's assessment of Jr.? Well, I would first question I would ask is that Jr. isn't a good manager compared to what uh, Russo's vast experience in the wrestling business, his vast experience with the Dallas Cowboys or the Pittsburgh Steelers, his vast experience in sports management, or his vast experience selling washers and dryers at PC Richards and renting out videotapes. So, Jim Ross was an excellent manager and he was i dare say probably the best talent relations manager vice president that we ever had in that role and jr did a great job of communicating with all the talent much better than i ever was i wasn't suited for that job i'm not suited for that administrative role didn't like it didn't do it well but jim ross loved it and i thought jim ross did very well in that role so i disagree completely on that Russo really lays it in on him here. He says, you know what Vince used to call Jr. behind the scenes? Deputy dog. He wore that ridiculous cowboy hat 24 seven. And even if Vince was kidding, you know, there was something to it. And if you're a young talent with all the promise in the world, are you going to go sign with a sharp, attractive, energetic go-getter like Eric Bischoff? Are you going to sign with a guy who's only worried about being on television, talking about his barbecue sauce that bears his name and moves at the snail's pace of a laid back canine cartoon character. So Bruce, what say you, what do you think of Russo's assessment where he sort of classifies, you know, Jr. as this old slug compared to the young, energetic Eric Bischoff? Uh, I would say that his assessment is extremely uneducated because Jim Ross was a great businessman and Jim Ross was diligent in going after new talent and maybe it didn't move at the pace that Vince Russo want because Russo didn't understand all the parameters that we had to work under and Jim Ross as a manager and Jim had to do things to make sure legally that we were covering our ass but I completely disagree with that assessment. Russo says that JR's inability to sign new talent, fresh names is what kept, you know, his performance hindered in 96. And he says in 97, he takes a more active role in recruiting talent. And that doesn't make JR very happy, but he says sort of the straw that broke the camel's back is, you know, as he started getting burnt out on seeing the same names on the booking sheets, when he sees the ultimate warrior there, he realizes he needs to take action. So he goes out and tries to bring in Al Snow, the Dudleys, Taz, Stevie Richards, and Chris Jericho, uh, all before he leaves. Of course, I did find it interesting that when he's taking Jr. to task, he's also saying, I signed all these guys from ECW just minutes after saying, no, I didn't get any of my influence from ECW. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. And, you know, the, the, the crazy thing about it is that you go, you go and you listen to all of this stuff and it, it all contradicts, you know, the other. So it, it's, it's craziness, but Jim, you know, Jim was out there recruiting talent and Russo was out there suggesting talent. The rub came when Vince McMahon and led by Vince Russo would say that maybe JR wasn't working fast enough. Guys, you know, we could only work as fast as we could. And, and you're dealing again with legalities. If someone's under contract, we can't touch them. Can somebody else go out and talk to them and have an informal conversation with them? Yes. But as officers of the company, we couldn't. So there were a lot of details like that, but yeah, I I think that was just more of a personal thing and Russo not truly understanding. And to this day, I think Vince Russo would tell you, he doesn't understand what it takes to actually have to go through everything you have to go through to sign and secure a talent. Owen Hart has been a pretty, um, I don't know, something that a lot of people blame on Vince Russo, of course, his accident that happened and, and specifically Russo cites in his book that Steve Austin came over to him and said, don't blame yourself for this. It's not your fault. But a lot of other people say, had it not been written that way, it would have never happened. And allegedly, you know, Russo wrote in the book that McMahon just a week after wanted to prove that the, the stunt could be done safely and even suggested doing it himself from the top of the arena. You know, we'll talk about the Owen situation a little later, but in reality, do you think it's fair that Vince Russo gets blamed for Owen's tragic accident? No, I don't. It was a horrible, horrible, tragic accident, but it was an accident and you have to leave it at that and to point blame. That's unfair. Eventually, you know, Vince is uh, starting to feel pretty burnt out and he's not happy that he he's not getting any credit. And this is a big part of Russo's book. He says, every magazine with a picture of Vince made me want to vomit. This guy was taking credit for everything and I was nowhere to be found, not even as a footnote. At first, it wasn't a big deal as long as Vince paid me. But the better we did, the more Vince talked about himself and the more despondent I became. Vince the genius. Yeah, right. This was the guy that gave a go-ahead on whose tag team partner, what. He was also, you know, sort of taking Vince to task in the book for, you know, challenging people to show up to work sick, uh, including a time once where he does that, and McMahon says, there is no sick. And he calls him at ungodly hours. It just doesn't feel like McMahon sort of cares about him on, as, as a person, on a personal level. And sort of the straw that broke the camel's back here is that now all of a sudden he's writing SmackDown as well as Raw, and he feels like he should be compensated for that. Because in, in Hollywood, if you write one show and then you're writing a second show, you get paid more money. But now he's writing both Raw and SmackDown. He's doubled his workload, and he hasn't been paid an extra dime. I need you to help me sort of respond to where Russo starts to feel pretty upset with McMahon, overworked, underappreciated, underpaid, all of the above. No, it's called the job. And there, 
So all those years I did it, I didn't get any credit for it. All those years Pat Patterson did it, he didn't get any credit for it. Uh, after Russo, all the years Brian Gewertz did it, he didn't get any credit for it. Ed Kosky doesn't get credit for it now. Dave Kapoor doesn't get credit for it now. Uh, Vince McMahon gets credit for it. Vince McMahon is the head of the company. It is Vince McMahon's company. He gets credit, he gets blame. So if you're in this thing for credit, then then go to Hollywood and get your name at the end of the show. That's not what this job entails. This job entails 24-7. You're at Vince McMahon's beck and call. And again, that was the job. That is the job. And if you don't want to do that, then find another job. But to to get in the job and then complain about it, to have, oh, that's my dream job. And then you realize, well, it would be better if, if I only worked my hours and if I didn't have to answer to him. And, and if I got a big credit at the end and every article was about me, doesn't work that way. That's, that's not the way it's structured. That's not the job. It never has been. And I doubt it ever will be. Russo is pretty frustrated, so he calls a meeting with Vince and says that his wife has recently started to refer to herself as a single parent. And in an effort to try to fix this, Russo wants to relocate to where he's no longer required to be in Stanford every day, and they can have the support system of being near her family. And McMahon allegedly says something like, I don't know what the problem is. You make enough money now. Why don't you just hire a nanny? And Russo feels like that is the sentence that proved to him that McMahon never cared about him whatsoever. So he sets a a follow-up meeting where he lays out exactly what he thinks he deserves. And he tells McMahon that he wants to retire when he turns 40, which is 15 months away. And in order for him to sort of keep the train on the tracks, he wants to make a million dollars over that 15-month stretch. He says McMahon is shocked and says that's a lot of money and he'll need to think about it. Two weeks pass, no call comes, and he doesn't hear a word. We know what's coming next, but before we get there, is it the the nanny line or the refusal to accept the million-dollar offer that ultimately led to Russo leaving, in your opinion? In my opinion, uh, probably the nanny line, but, you know, had he come to me with that same thing, I would have told him to want in one hand, shit in the other, and tell me which one filled up first. Uh, <laughs> you know, get the f*** over it. Um, but I, I guess the nanny line is probably what what kind of put him over the edge. So we know what happens. He accepts the job as WCW creative director in October of 99. And a lot of people would probably ask, well, what's the difference? And Russo even lays it out in his book. The difference is no Vince. You're not going to have this crazy schedule where you're on call 24 seven. And I guess here's where the rubber meets the road. The night before a raw in New Jersey, Russo calls McMahon late at night and lets him know that he's just now coming back from Atlanta and he's got nothing left to give Vince. And McMahon blows a gasket saying he's coming after WCW and he's going to come after him. And Russo just launches into, you didn't honor my request for more money. You didn't care about my family. You demanded all of this from me and it's torn my family apart. And McMahon says something like, I didn't know I was such a bad person. I would have given you the money. 
I hope our paths cross again in the future. What do you remember hearing about this phone call in the middle of the night? And then all of a sudden you show up to raw and the guy who's been here sort of steering the ship creatively is completely gone. Well, I got, I got the call that night. I got the call from Jim Ross that Russo had left and was going to WCW. And I talked to Vince McMahon and he was like, all hands on deck tomorrow. Let's take a look at what we got. And, uh, we'll do TV onward and upward. He was hurt, but business goes on, man. Next day we've got to produce television. And I I would have thought that after that time, you know, least you could have done was had a face to face meeting with him and tell him, okay, this is what I'm considering doing and, and take it from there. Uh, he didn't do that. So I, I disagree with the way that it was handled and what have you, you know, you talk about when rubber meets the road and what's the difference now, no Vince, what's the difference now was going forward, no success. So now you have an opportunity to see what Vince Russo without Vince McMahon tweaking his ideas and being able to massage it and make them work. Now you get to go see what he can do. And we saw. We did see. Uh, there's a, a meeting in July 2003 in Stanford where Russo flies up to see McMahon. He writes, quote, There was just something calling me back to him, a sense of unfinished business. And he sort of compares himself to Shane in the book. And he says he wanted to see Vince's soft side, his human side. And when he finally meets McMahon, he himself is overcome with emotion because he just wants to tell McMahon how he feels about him and how much he meant to him. And McMahon says something like, you can't work that closely with someone and not care about them. And that's not really the answer that Russo was looking for. Why do you think so many guys just look for McMahon's approval like this? Because he's the boss. He pays, he pays the tab. He's the boss. Everybody wants the boss's approval. Really, the crux of the book is he doesn't feel like he got enough credit from the WWE, or WWE, as it were. He says, but Vince has to give credit where it's due. Think about it. Why aren't there any credits at the end of Raw? It's a television show, isn't it? Why isn't anyone else being given credit? He sort of said that's the job, that's the business. But I, I do think it's fair enough to ask... Why couldn't there be credits, right? Sure, there could be, but Vince, the stars, the talent are the stars, and the talent is what he's trying to sell. He's not trying to sell gaffers and lighting techs and writers and everything else. It's a philosophy. In the end, you sort of ask yourself, was it all worth it? Russo wrote, I lived at Titan Tower. I was a man possessed. Looking back now, I don't know why. I was so caught up in the moment that I just couldn't see or hear anything else, including, again, my own family. Today, I sit here embarrassed, realizing how much I sacrificed my own family for a wrestling company. During that time, they were not my priority. Work was. And I'm ashamed to admit it. One thing I regret deeply that I can never make up for is that my son, Will, went from the age 7 to 12 while I worked for Vince. And I don't remember a single day from those years. Bruce, that sort of sums up the wrestling business warts and all, doesn't it? It does. And you either want to be in it or you don't. And those are the sacrifices that we have all had to make. They're not exclusive to Vince Russo. I guess we should mention here that Russo says that he started with the company making around 60 grand. He topped out around 350. And when he jumped to WCW, his best year there was 535. 
based on all of his contributions to the business, do you think that, you know, not only did he not get the credit, was he, was he compensated fairly in your opinion? Well, I think it was overcompensated, frankly. Well, let's sort of put a bow on Vince Russo, man. You know, he's going to be responding on his daily show on the Realm Network every day this week. <laughs> I'm sure. And, and I guess we should go ahead and say, he's going to say, I wrote this book, bro. And I wasn't a drinker and I wasn't taking pills. Not like Bruce Pritchard. So his memory isn't as good as mine, bro. That's what he's going to say. Your response? Okay. Well, my response is I haven't taken pills in probably over 15 years and uh, have a drink occasionally, but uh, I'll put my memory and put it up against anybody else's on certain things that affected me. That's what I remember, and that's you know how I remember things, is how they affected me and what I was involved with. So I stand by every single thing I said, and again, I'll put it up against anybody with anybody. Where would you rank Vince Russo as far as the creative influences of all time? If I may be so bold, I think, you know, Pat Patterson's probably number one. Who's number two? Where does Vince Russo belong on that list? Uh, I would say that Vince Russo is going to be in the top 10. Uh, it was a perfect opportunity for you to lean on top five and you didn't do it. So I I, I, you know, you know why, you know why? Cause I, I'm not sure he would break the top five. That's all. If we're talking tag teams, he'd be in the top five. But, you know, just saying. Well, there's no telling what we're going to be talking next week right here on the WWE Network. If you haven't already, check out our archives. We've got more on Vince Russo and a lot of the topics we covered today at somethingtowrestle.com. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey, hey it's Conrad, and we are out of time. Until next week, right here on the WWE Network for something else to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.